0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com.
0: I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
2: Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You?, Food industry insights with me, your host Katie Kiefer, and today we're talking about whore <laughs> One of my favorite, one of my favorite topics, of course, is pork production. Well, meat production in general, and uh, we're going to be talking today with Ted Genoways, who has just published a, um, shall we say, somewhat incendiary. Uh, I don't think I exaggerate there. Somewhat incendiary book uh, called The Chain. Um, Ted is. Uh, let me just get to my notes here. <laughs> Whoops. Um, here we go. Ted is the editor-at-large for On Earth. He's been on this show before. In fact, he was here in March. Um, the magazine of the Natural Resources Defense Council. He has also contributed to a number of other magazines, such as The Atlantic, Bloomberg, Businessweek, Harper's Mother Jones, The New Republic, and Outside. His new book, The Chain Factory—sorry, uh, sorry, The Chain Farm, Factory, and the Fate of Our Food was published just this month by HarperCollins, and he is everywhere and on every radio show, so I'm really grateful for him uh, to take for taking the time with me today. Um, Ted, welcome back to the show. How are you doing?
3: I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back.
1: Oh,
2: it's a pleasure. Uh, it's been quite a whirlwind uh, experience for you, my friend, in these last few weeks. I just see your name popping up all over the place, whether it's That's- print, whether it's radio. Have you done TV yet?
3: Uh no no T V yet, but you know um I'm I'm available if anyone wants to book me.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'll let all my friends know it like Rachel Maddow. I don't you know, I don't know why Rachel actually just as a as brief aside, I don't know why um at least MSNBC, some of the hosts, don't ever pick up on any of these food stories. Because I think these are are tremendous, especially your book, uh, being so much about labor relations, I think these are hugely important stories for Americans to understand, not only about their food, but for me, this was an education in, uh, in, in immigration law and why we really need to pass some reforms. So um, let us uh, jump right into the discussion about labor, since that's primarily what you cover in the book i mean obviously there's uh, there's other material there because it's hormel and it's pig packing and it's you know all kinds of stuff like that antitrust there's a lot of material there can you give us a little history of the labor relations with hormel from its beginning because it was a family-owned company in the initial uh, phases and it did have some very um you know uh what do i want to say very fair union contracts when it started and then that sort of unraveled and i i kind of want to have you take us from there
3: Sure. Yeah. Well, that's exactly right. The, the the company, there was a strike in 1933 uh, during the depression that that was a a big strike. But but J Hormel, the, the who was the son of the founder uh, of the company, recognized that labor, uh, organized labor was coming, and that the best thing to do was to to forge a kind of shared set of goals with the workforce. Mm-hmm. And so he established a salary system, which was unheard of at the time, to pay somebody a 12-month salary for what had been sort of seasonal labor, um, but also established uh, you know, a pension system that there would be uh, warning if, the, if there was going to be layoffs that they would have 12 months uh, advance notice, um, all sorts of progressive moves. And what this did was create a really unparalleled period of labor and management harmony. Um, That started to unravel in the 1970s when the company passed out of the hands of the the Hormel family and the, the people who had trained as managers under Jay Hormel started to retire and were replaced by a new, much more corporate uh, le- set of leaders. And in particular, Dick Knowlton, who was himself the son of, of, of a meatpacker um, who had worked at the, the scales at the, the Austin plant in Minnesota, um, but had trained as a manager, he was he was obsessed with the idea of automating and mechanizing as much of the process as possible Mm -hmm. and believed that if you could replace a worker with a machine then you not only had less trouble with worker relations um, but you also had a system that was less and less skilled so that you could pay lower wages and offer fewer benefits to unskilled workers
2: amazing Okay so we get to the uh, 70s uh, this uh, the whole sort of uh, face of of meatpacking cuz i imagine that they were not alone that hormel no. was not alone in in adopting uh, a the more mechanized processes that we see today and b uh, using less skilled workers i mean i thought it was fascinating that in the 30s uh, you know there was actually some sense of responsibility of corporation towards worker and vice versa and that even as early as the 70s and i don't know i don't think most of us think necessarily is that was the the era of union busting but it clearly was um so what happened after that like what was the next how did the union busting because there was a huge strike in the 70s right or the early 80s and then yeah well
3: what happened was that the that dick knowlton convinced first convinced the management at at hormel convinced the board that what they needed was an entirely new plant Mm-hmm. That where they could implement all of the automated processes that he had been developing um, when he was in charge of that division. And he sold it to management by saying we'll be able to slash wages. He sold the same plan to the union by saying it will reduce the amount of work that you have to do uh, to process each animal as it comes through, mm-hmm. which was true. But what he left out was that the real plan was to run far more animals through the plant than they ever had before in in each shift.
2: And that's what so, we call increasing the chain speed.
3: Absolutely. And okay. so, so the, the, the plant is set, um, it, everything runs on a chain conveyor system,
1: mm-hmm.
3: and and that conveyor carries a certain number of animals per hour through the processing line. And the the, the speed of the chain is negotiated between management and the union. And it is managed down to a single animal. There's, both sides have uh, systems engineers who actually walk the floor counting cogs in the chain uh-huh. and with a stopwatch to make sure that the chain is running at the speed that everybody has agreed on. Wow! And so it is, it's, it's very uh, managed and very timed. Um, but the, the union in this case had gotten, in my estimation, a little bit, Uh, trusting of management and thought, well, if they're saying that this is going to be better, we'll go along and and agree with that. And unfortunately for them, they also signed a no-strike agreement saying until the the plant has had a chance to get up and running and recoup some of the expense that was incurred in building the plant, we promise not to go on strike. So the workers showed up. They found that the processes were not easier. They were, in fact, more repetitive and there was a, a rash of, of carpal tunnel syndrome and and tennis elbow and other repetitive stress injuries um, they found that the knives that they were working with now were which were uh, mechanical knives were harder to deal with and and uh, harder to sharpen and uh-huh. that caused more stress and injury and they couldn't go on strike
1: <laughs> right um,
3: and so and on top of all of that, the company said, um, we are gonna ask you to take uh, about a twenty seven percent pay cut. So because? predictably because they said the, 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 the rest of the industry is going this way. The the, the, the cost of labor is going down, um, and if you don't if you don't want to take this pay cut we can find somebody that we can train to do the kind of repetitive cuts that you are doing now. This is no longer a skilled job.
2: Right. So you're not a butcher anymore. You're just a guy who makes one cut in one direction on one muscle, and then it moves on to the next worker and they finish that cut. Uh, You know, anybody who's been to a meatpacking facility knows what that, that's what it looks like. It's a really, um, you know, repetition is, is barely does justice to (laughs) the mind numbing quality of this work. But anyway, um, I want to just move on a little bit because uh, fascinating as that is, um, in 2008, you, um, you say is the beginning of city legislation efforts, um, Aimed against the undocumented workers that the unions began to bring in, um, because people did quit the jobs because of the twenty seven percent pay cut, right? And so they brought in a lot more undocumented workers, and suddenly that became, uh, you know, a whole racial and labor dispute within these small towns in Minnesota. And so I, I wanted to um, ask you, like, I was curious that instead of blaming the the company, Hormel or QPP, it's, its you know, the spinoff that was became the packing company. Why did people turn against the, you know, the townspeople turn so much against the undocumented or the workers who were right. from outside, rather than saying to the company, well, you just screwed us out of, you know, middle-class jobs. I mean, people had before been able to support a family, go on vacation, build a retirement fund, and then when the jobs, when the wages fell so drastically and only, you know, illegal, basically illegal workers would come in and take them, um, nobody got mad at the company. They just got pissed off at the workers, and I, I thought that was a really curious phenomenon. I wondered if you had some insight on that that you wanted to bring out.
3: I think I do. I mean, the the thing that I think one has to remember is that after the strike in '85 and '86, mm-hmm. the um, the the part of the way that the strike was resolved was that the, that Hormel promised to hire back. Uh, with preferential status, union workers who had lost their jobs while they were on strike. Uh. So they were told that they would be hired back to the company. But instead, Hormel said, we're going to take half the operation, the the cut and kill side of the operation. We're going to say now that that's a new company called Quality Pork Processors. Right. It's, it's within the four walls of the plant that we just built. Yeah. Um, At the time, it shared a parking lot and an entrance. It was, as one uh, guy at the union told me, it's like taking a room in your house and saying, that's no longer part of my house and I'm not responsible for anything that (laughs) happens in there.
2: And as a result, they could also bust that union contract, right?
3: That's right. So they said, in that room, there's no union contract. There's, There's, And so the people who work in this part of the plant get a lower pay wage they don't have the same benefits, and they don't have a union contract with us. So the, we don't have to hire back the union workers into this part of the operation anymore. Right. And for a lot of the people who had grown up with the union in Austin, they regarded this new workforce as a scab labor force. They were union busters. Yeah. And and they responded in the kind of traditional way of, of – Anger, yes, at the company, but also trying to drive out the, the union busters in order to keep the union strong. But the reality was that by that point, the union was so wounded that, that there was no possibility of going out on strike. There was no possibility of, of raising hell with the, the, the company, and they just had to accept that this is, was the new reality.
2: Wow. I mean, this is one for the history books. It really is. It's yeah. an extraordinary story that you tell, and I, I wish we could do more justice to it in this conversation. But um, we're going to move right along because one of the things that you bring up, uh, more towards the end of the book, but um, is the is a very interesting alliance between the company, Hormel, and the ACLU, uh, and uh, who were trying to sort of – Mitigate some of the economic impact of driving that new workforce, that scab labor, out of town. Um, so I wondered if you could just expand on that a little bit, because I thought that, that sure. was fascinating. The ACLU is involved. In, I know.
3: know. Yeah. It, in, it ends, what? It, the situation ends up crazy, and so this was in Fremont, Nebraska.
2: Right.
3: That and Fremont um, had a similar situation to what occurred in Austin, except they said. Uh, we will accept a two-tier wage scale within the plant if you just keep it all as Hormel and all the people are allowed to remain in the Union.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: But but what that did was essentially cut Union wages deeply um, for everyone in the town. Nice. So you've got a festering dislike for uh, the, the new workforce that has come in, this immigrant workforce that's come in. And when the recession starts to take hold and you've hit hard times in 0- 06 and 07, and then there's this kind of growing nativist movement as as embodied by the, the laws in Arizona and Alabama and some of the other ordinances um, that were popping up against immigration, all of which were authored by the same guy, Chris Kobach. Right. Um,
2: and this th- is the show, your documents... Law,
3: just to be clear—that's yeah, exactly right. You, that you get you get people within the town of Fremont who start saying, "This is what we need to have happen here. We need mm-hmm. an ordinance that makes it so that they can't get jobs in town, so that they can't rent a house in town." The original version of the ordinance was that there there couldn't be any uh, sort of harboring, whatever exactly that means, of undocumented uh, immigrants. Wow! And so the ACLU. Rides in and says this is all unconstitutional, and they're right that it is. But the the funding that they end up getting, much of it for the campaign in town, comes from Hormel because Hormel does not want this ordinance either. Right. But they can't they can't publicly say that they don't want the ordinance because the obvious question would be why does Hormel um, oppose? Uh, an ordinance that would make it so that you couldn't hire undocumented workers. Well, the reason is that they have a largely undocumented workforce. Right. Um, so there, there was this transaction that, uh, that occurred where Hormel provided money and the ACLU and some other liberal groups um, used that money to publicly run the campaign against the ordinance. But it was all to, to no avail that the ordinance, uh, when it came to a vote, passed overwhelmingly, yeah. and and when the city was given the opportunity to backtrack and, and had a second vote on it, it passed by an even wider margin.
2: And Ted, why was it that the ACLU, or I mean, this is speculation, but it just don't you find it curious that the ACLU did not uh, sort of probe more deeply into the ulterior motives of Hormel and see the union busting as something that um, that also merited investigation and potentially you know legislation or at least uh, some sort of legal inquiry w- I, why didn't they I mean w- what was the deal like how come they got to whitewash that
3: yeah I think it was an uncomfortable arrangement for probably everybody involved mm. I I I don't have the sense that the ACLU was was any too happy to be dealing with Hormel and probably right. Hormel was not thrilled to be giving money to the ACLU
2: although it's a great but, public relations move for them i mean on the surface uh, of it right
3: except that they didn't publicize it at all they didn't want anybody to know ah. that they were that they were opposing the ordinance and even when the transaction became public and i questioned them about this they they simply said that they thought that it was best for uh, the people who were, you know, the chamber of commerce and the people who were in the city council, to take the lead in in voicing opposition to the ordinance.
2: Yeah, that makes sense, I guess.
3: <laughs> well, I mean, it, it makes sense from a public relations
2: standpoint. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, it's true. You wouldn't want your the town in which you're. You know, plant is located to know that you're actually the one who's <laughs> who's and, looking to force these do- undocumented workers into your and workforce. It's, it's
3: absurd, of course, because people on the one hand, everybody in town knows that this is where the the workforce has come from, where the people have come from. Yeah. But at the same time, talk about shooting yourself in the foot. I mean, the yeah. the, the the town seems not to acknowledge that Hormel actually sits just across the city limits so it is not affected by this ordinance most of the people who work uh-huh. in the plant who are do not have documented status live in a trailer park that is outside, outside. the city limits right. Right. and so the ordinance the only thing that it really accomplishes is scaring away businesses who look at this as uh, as something that that gives the town a black eye and and would be bad for their business to be associated
2: with. Wow. Yeah, that is. And also, of course, I mean, the other thing that you, that you mentioned in the book, and this makes sense, is like those undocumented workers, they rent properties. I mean, yeah. you know, so there's, there's an economic impact on the town, uh, you know, when you, when you start saying, well, you can't, I don't know, you can't rent, you can't get a license, you can't, whatever it is, whatever the uh, ordinance called for. But it was, I thought it was really interesting. Talk about shooting yourself in the foot. Um, I want to like rush along here because I want to talk about sure. hemp. Um, HIMP is the HACCP inspection models project. I've done a few programs about this actually quite a few programs about it and yep. um what it means is and it's and it's particularly prevalent now in the poultry industry but um it was pioneered essentially in the pork uh pork processing industry and and it means hemp is sort of HACCP, is hazardous analysis and critical control points that's what we use to uh, keep our food chain safe um, you know there are all these different spots on the on the on the chain line on the production line where uh, theoretically a USDA inspector is looking and, and evaluating whether or not the animal has you know obvious tumors or blemishes right. or bruises broken bones blah 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 um, so then uh, the pork industry I think was the pioneer for hemp. Um, and uh, and it was all about increasing the chain speed and reducing inspection because they claimed that they would be able to inspect far better and that it was all about the microbial swabs that the USDA inspectors would get at the end of the chain line. And so... Even though the Government Accountability Office, and I actually had one of the, you know, one of the top guys from GAO come on the show and explain why they were objecting to hemp last year, um, it still got passed. So how did that happen? How did we get this, even though it's been protested widely throughout, you know, the food production, including USDA inspectors, you know, writing letters to Congress and everything? So what happened with that? So I, I think
3: part of this is that the way that that hemp is described and the way that HACCP con, uh, systems are described makes intuitive sense. Um, there's the statement that what we're going to do is testing for at a microbial level for pathogens that are that exist on the meat, right. and that seems to make a lot of sense. You say, well. This is scientific. It's it's. This is more advanced than the old method, which is manual inspection, which yeah. the industry um, ridiculed as poke and sniff. That yeah. because you do you you feel for for tumors, you feel for for granules that would indicate uh, illness in the intestines, and you smell things to see if there's you know if there's anything rotting, which is obviously right. a sign of illness. But the idea was that this will be more advanced. The thing is that what you are getting is not a one-to-one comparison of manual inspection against a microbial inspection. What you're getting is in in current plants that you would have seven meat inspectors on the line in a pork plant. Um, and on a, a hemp plant, you have four inspectors instead right. and only only one of them is actually working on the line. The others are double checking paperwork and doing double checks of, of work that is done by the quality assurance people who have been hired by the company. Uh-huh. And what this does for the company is allow them to only have one inspector on the line who potentially slows things down or or stops production because of a problem um and it allows the 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 line to run much much faster and the whole notion of this and and especially this has been true in poultry is that it, it, this is okay to do because the consumers will cook and kill anything that is on the meat that is harmful right and and not only now have they have they said well th- this is okay for this this reduced inspection, but they've you know there's a push now, as I'm sure you know, to have Campylobacter and to have Salmonella removed from the list of adulterants. D- well, they they've say, never you know, actually
2: acquired the status of true adulterants like E. coli right. has, so uh, they're still just uh, you know they're just like you know cost of doing business. I mean, exactly. There's a big push to make them adulterants. That's right. Sure.
3: So, but but the but to have them not listed as as adulterants is the same. That it's it is perfectly fine for right. for a, a chicken breast to go into commerce covered with with salmonella, yeah. and the and argument do. is that <laughs> that you know you're going to cook that chicken breast and it's going to be fine. Right. But what it ignores, and you know, circling back to where we started, is is what the the exposure to to these bacteria means for the people who handle that meat all the way through the process, ah. and and there's no concern for what's going on inside the plant with the plant workers who are exposed to all of these drug resistant bacteria right and and to me That should be at at least as much of a concern as as the consumer safety is.
2: Yeah, very interesting. I mean, it has been uh, proven over and over again that um, people who work in pork processing facilities or or even in a pork farm or CAFO will have a very high incidence of uh, MRSA. That's in right. their systems, even if they're not symptomatic, and that's methicillin-resistant uh, staph aureus, right? Um, yes. I, we, unfortunately, we have to take a quick break here, um, but we sure. will be right back with Ted Genoways to continue this fascinating discussion about pork processing and Hormel. Um, so stay tuned. This is What Doesn't Kill You.
1: the only farm in the United States that has its own USDA inspected red meat abattoir or slaughterhouse and its own USDA inspected poultry abattoir or slaughterhouse. We partner with Whole Foods to deliver our high quality meat and poultry from Miami,
3: Florida all the way to Princeton, New Jersey. One family, one farm, five generations,
2: 145 years a full-circle return to sustainable land stewardship and humane animal stockmanship. For more information, please visit our
1: website, whiteoakpastures.com.
3: Hello, this is Mark Ladner from Del Posto, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network.
2: And we are back. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. I'm talking today with Ted Genoways, who has a new book out on the shelves. uh, And he is everywhere uh and definitely should be paid attention to. His book is called The Chain, Farm Factory, and the Fate of Our Food. It came out this month from HarperCollins. I urge you to take a look at it uh, and learn more about immigration law, about undocumented workers, about union busting, uh the history of labor in this country. It's just – and, of course – all about the pork packing industry. Um, it's, it's really, it's a great book, I got to say. And I'm sure you've had a more than your share of uh, comparisons between this and um, Chris Leonard's great book, The Meat Racket, that came out last year, or last spring, I should say. Um, uh, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But I want to just uh, quickly uh, address one of my favorite Stories in the meatpacking industry. Um, I this caught my eye as yours, but I wasn't smart enough to write a book about it. Um, and that was the um, the whole fascinating story of how uh, liquefied pork brains rendered a whole slew of workers incredibly sick with a mysterious neurological disorder that has never gone away for most of them. Um, so, yeah. can you? Uh, <laughs> Can you take us through a little just a quick history of that um cuz sure. definitely it it hit the news and then it left the news and then nobody ever said another word and so you go into great detail actually about what happened to those workers and uh what the fallout from that issue was and how it how it connects to the idea of chain speed. So let's let's wrap that up.
3: Sure. Yeah, so this occurred at a part of the Quality Pork Processing Plant in Austin, Minnesota that is known as the Head Table. And it is exactly what it sounds like. It's the place where the pork heads are processed. um, And as the the heads pass down the line, there's somebody there who, you know, cuts off the ears, who clips the snouts, scrapes the meat from the pallets, take the cheek meat off. The very last place on the last station at the end of of the head table, um, there was a plexiglass shield. The denuded skull would slide through an opening there, and a worker on the other side would take the skull and insert a brass nozzle into the opening at the back of the skull, which would trip a trigger and release a blast of pressurized air and the air was enough to to liquefy the brains, which then were poured into a catch bucket um, yummy and and <laughs> and, the, and the skull was dropped down a chute to go uh, for being ground up into bone meal
2: Now... and because brains yeah. are just to stop you here, but brains and spinal cord tissue; these are all considered in the pork. I know they are in the cattle industry, but the, in the pork industry, they're also considered uh, basically biohazards. Uh,
3: in at this point, the pork brains were considered product. Um, oh, really? The, the, the pork brains were being collected and were being sold to Korea for thickener and stir fry. <laughs> oh um, yeah. So this was. So this was. <laughs> Um, they were they were harvesting this to to um, they put it into twenty bound uh, containers that they would ship and, and right. sell. Um, but the problem was uh, that the the blast of air that was going in was just enough that it was not just liquefying the brains, but also aerosolizing a small amount of brain tissue. So you had this fine mist that was in the air that was brain matter, Uh and it would... Uh, it was affecting first the people who worked at the brain machine but eventually other people on the head table and people who were in proximity to the head table supervisors who passed through the area and what was going on is that they were inhaling the the, the brain tissue um, their bodies were were reacting to this and creating antibodies to kill the, the foreign uh, cells but because Pig cells are similar enough in structure, especially neural cells, to human cells that they would, the antibodies didn't stop with the pig cells. They moved on to attacking the nerve cells, um, the spinal cells, the brain cells in the meatpacking workers themselves. And the thing is that that this was a practice that they had engaged in for a number of years. They had started back in, in the early 90s collecting these brains.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: But but what happened was that between 2002 and 2007, the speed of the line, the chain went from moving at 900 animals per hour to 1,350 animals per hour.
1: Wow.
3: And this is a direct result of the hemp program. This is, yeah. this is having reduced inspection and being allowed to run the line faster. You see an increase of 50% um, in just a few years. Yeah. And now it's not a small amount of brain tissue in the air. It's a, it's a growing amount, and eventually it was large enough that, that there were more than two dozen people who, were, who had inhaled the brain matter and had this autoimmune response.
2: Unbelievable! As,
3: as you said, some of them, the most severe cases, have you know, ended up with permanent spine and brain damage.
2: That's just an astonishing story. And, of course, the company, well, I think people can guess what happened, which was that, you know, after paying lip service to support, essentially, many of them were screwed. Am I right?
3: Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. I mean, the, <laughs> it's, it, there's, I mean it's, it, many of the people were, uh, who were affected were undocumented workers. Right. There were a, a number of them whose immigration status was questioned, they were either fired or scared into leaving and and lost contact with the social worker who managed their workers' comp claim. Um, the few people who have gotten any sort of compensation out of the company, uh, most of them settled for six months' pay.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, it was astonishing to me. Permanent disability equals a $12,000 payout Thank you. Right. Goodbye. You're ruined. Um, yeah. <clears throat> one thing that struck me, and uh, you know, this is just pure speculation on my part, um, and actually you just helped me a lot uh, in your explanation of reminding me that pork cells are very similar to human cells, which is why we yeah. use them so much in scientific experimentation. But I yeah. also was curious about uh, some of the drugs that we routinely feed our... Um, Uh, particularly pork in the form of like beta agonists, um, in the form of, of course, the ubiquitous antibiotics used to manage disease. um, And, you know, some of the other drugs and growth hormones that are are typically used in uh, livestock agriculture. Do you think that any of those uh, may have contributed to the severity of the symptoms or is that just pure speculation on my part? (sighs)
3: I don't know that it con- contributed to the symptoms in this case but I but I do think it's important to as you said to to acknowledge that you know the the studies indicate that hog barn workers have a, have test positive for MRSA at a rate of about 45% which yeah. is just off the charts for for a human population right. and what that indicates is that what is going into the hogs is winding up in the the waste and in the air and water around right. those confinements and it's almost certainly winding up in the you know the the uh loading areas at the plants and and if if you've ever talked to anybody about how these plants work um there's not there's you know no outside access from ormel but there Almost all of the knives are are run on a pneumatic system, mm. so there's pressurized air that's everywhere, and there's just swirling winds every yeah. place. So any sure, there's place tons of fans
2: as, too. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm.
3: exactly. And so anything that is attached or contained in the in hog waste is going to be in the air and being breathed in, and if you can get MRSA, from from those conditions, I don't see why you wouldn't be getting exposure to anything else that's being fed to the hogs sure. as well.
2: Yeah. Okay. Good point. So um, let's move on because I want to, uh, we only have about, we have about, I'm going to say 11 minutes. Um, okay. So, <laughs> and as you know from my outline, I have a lot more questions. Um <laughs> One of the things that you touch on, and i and I kind of wish uh we, you would had more you sort of scope to expand on this is um something that Chris Leonard worked on a lot in his book the meat racket um and that is the whole idea of vertical integration and right. sort of um even though I love white oak pastures and they are vertically integrated it's it's of a whole different you know subset when you're talking about somebody like Hormel who then spins off a QPP um, but essentially it's still an all integrated system right down to the growers and I I just wanted to talk a little bit about how um, how that consolidation in uh, both pork and poultry uh, is affecting the industries and um, and affecting workers and sort of the quality of the animals and all of that stuff there's a there are a lot of parallels to draw there and I wish you would do that
3: yeah absolutely well it it's a it's a similar thing that that and i again I trace this back to hemp that when you get these mm-hmm. increased line speeds um which they're allowed to run and fully implement in two thousand and four, I don't think it's coincidence that by two thousand and five um the producers that are centered in the midwest are pressing to have the vertical integration bands removed in the yeah. midwest. And Hormel, in particular, benefits because you figure that their main cut-and-kill operations are in southern Minnesota and in eastern Nebraska. Yeah. And so when they get a special exemption in Iowa, which is right in between, um, that allows them to have a stronger involvement in the, the construction of hog confinements, to own the hogs that are in the barns, to own cropland that raises feed to feed the hogs. Right um that now what they have is a great deal more control over their supply chain. Yeah. And not only does this allow the kind of price fixing that that Chris Leonard's book d- deals with ec- extensively and extremely well and and allow the market manipulation that he's focused on, but what it also means is that the 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 supply is uh, can be standardized and this is really the thing that that Hormel was pushing for if you're going to if you're going to automate your plant then what you want is a is a standard sized hog coming That's through right. the door
2: every piece exactly the same Exactly. You
3: you, want to have 19,000 hogs that arrive in Austin, Minnesota each day that weigh the exact um, same amount on the hoof, that have the same lean to fat ratio, Mm -hmm. that have the same size. Uh, You know, all the cuts are the same size. Confirmation
2: is exactly the same. So every pork chop, no matter which animal it comes from, number one or number 19,000, is exactly the same.
3: That's right. Yeah. And so and, and what that means is that that uh you've got a kind of industrial attitude toward all of this this raising and and to me that's not it's not farming anymore at that no, point.
1: Definitely. You're
3: not you're not raising individual animals. What you're doing is is produ- feeding a diet to an animal that that will pro- that will within a set period of time grow to be a certain size and proportion that you can deliver to the next stage in the, the, the industrialized process. And it turns the hogs from animals into widgets, in my opinion.
2: Oh, yeah, I, co- I completely agree with you. I mean, and we've seen, uh, just as an aside, in the pork industry, uh, sorry, in the poultry industry, uh, we've seen what that genetic engineering uh, or genetic manipulation to right. achieve that standardization has done to um, chickens and turkeys. Um, you know, turkeys are now engineered to grow to market weight. They can be 50 pounds, I learned recently, and right. we'll be talking about that in a future show. Um, but they can get turkeys up to 50 pounds in about 6 months and the animal literally cannot move. It has right. just fall forwards on its breast and that to a certain extent uh, hogs experience some uh, serious difficulties with this regimen that they're on including the beta agonists. Uh, uh, that uh, will do things like make their hooves fall off or, uh, right. uh, you know, cause all kinds of um, mobility issues. But we digress. Um, mm-hmm. Let us <laughs> – let us, because uh, this is another really important thing because this just happened. I was doing my research yesterday. Um, when I talked to you last March, uh, it was an excerpt – it was about an excerpt from the book about uh, water quality issues and right. local drinking water. And this yeah. is increasingly a major agricultural issue across the United States – really okay. no matter which part of ag you work in, uh, water quality is becoming more and more of a major problem um, thanks to all of the stuff that we pump in. And one of the things that happens when you vertically integrate um, your, your your system, as Hormel has done, is that they take the manure from those kfos and they spray it all over their feed crops, which they then feed to the animals, but the runoff goes into the water system. So you okay. have a fantastic uh, couple of chapters about that. And And then, and so, uh, and you bring up the fact that there's some legislation pending. Well, in September, and I'm sure you saw this, um, the U.S. House, uh, that's our Republican House, today voted uh, to approve legislation that would prevent the development and implementation of a regulation expanding the scope of the Federal Clean Water Act to cover most of the country's water bodies ditches and gullies, a rule which, quote unquote, would be particularly detrimental to agriculture. So um, let's talk about that for a second, because that's a serious problem. I mean, if the Senate follows suit and this law and this legislation becomes uh, passed as law, then that means that anyone who's involved in agriculture can basically, you know, blow any crap they want to into the water yep. supply with no repercussions. So talk a little bit about the guys that you, you know, you had a great chapter about the guy who's like, tried to stop the plant on one side and then it ends up popping up on the other side. And eh.
3: Yeah, well, and that's, so, I mean, especially in North Central Iowa, there's been a huge boom in the building of these CAFOs yeah. and, and doing exactly what you're saying, which is spreading the manure um, often in the, the, the section exactly where the where the keFO is situated, and that it's a part of the state that is extremely hilly, um, and uh, that also is there's almost nothing in the way of trees or other vegetation to uh-huh. uh, prevent uh, erosion, and. It happens to also be, you know, where you get the, the headwaters for both the Des Moines and the Raccoon River watersheds, which happen to be where most of the state gets its drinking water. Incredible. And so when you get a lot of manure that's applied and is getting into these, these small waterways um, in the northern part of the state at the top of the watershed, it's all going to flow downhill and into the... The larger creeks and the rivers and make its way eventually across the state. And what the, the folks at the Des Moines Water Works were telling me is that they, they can see after a rain, they have monitoring stations that go sure. from Des Moines all the way up to the northern part of the state. When it rains, they can see the nitrate levels and the E. coli levels jump. They know exactly what's going on. That's, that is the manure running off into right. the river. And they, in particular, have been having a challenge with trying to keep the nitrate levels down, because what is coming in at their intakes, which is near the confluence of the Des Moines and the Raccoon Rivers, is often two and three times the levels that are allowable under the Clean Water Act. Um, And they've got to do what they can to process and bring that down to the, the safe drinking levels. And that's great for the people of Des Moines and the people who are on the Des Moines uh, Waterworks drinking system. But for everybody who is upstream in smaller municipalities where they don't have uh, the same resources or especially the people who are on well systems, what that means is that the water that they're drinking is almost certainly higher in nitrates than is allowable by the Clean Water Act. And there, I don't see why anyone... Engaged in agriculture would say to themselves, "I, I don't care if there's poison in my wells. I, you know, I just, I, I, I don't want the EPA coming in and measuring. Right. I, 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 I don't understand that resistance. Well, you, you I, it
2: describe just, it very well because you say. Uh, you know, the, the the farmers are saying, well, I'm growing the food and we can't live without the food that we're eating. You know, you can't live without me. And then on the other side, the waterworks are saying, but you can't live without water, homie. I mean, no. it's just, it's incredible to me that um, that the agriculture, uh, you know, especially large-scale agriculture is so profoundly resistant to any kind of dialogue, much less change, uh, that right. involves altering their practices. And I, I, I just want to, like, we really have to close now, but I just want Here. to, like, get your take. On that, like, what is it going to take? What will have to happen in terms of legislation, in terms of community involvement, in terms of you know whatever, to get sort of the environmental uh, side of things in line with agriculture in a way where everyone can thrive? What's what's your magic bullet?
3: Yeah, I think that that unfortunately, this is not one of those problems that gets solved at the grocery store. People often right. want to say, well, what do what do I boycott? What do I stop buying? But when you're talking even about a company like Hormel, you have to remember that Hormel is not just the, the pork products that they sell. They're, that it, This is also Genio Turkeys and Jiffy Peanut Butter, sure. or sorry, it, it, uh, Skippy Peanut Butter, yeah. and Holy Guacamole and and chis Salsa. I mean, they, they are a giant, diversified company. And it's not going to be possible to, to simply boycott them into uh, doing... Something different in the way that they run their business, it requires government involvement and government oversight yeah and what what we need to do to do is demand that our congressional leaders um, take on these problems and also pressure the president. The USDA answers to Obama and there, and i I am still really surprised that that the industry has been allowed. Um, to, to run amok as much as it has in recent years. Yeah, um, me too. And 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 only to the benefit uh, of really of the Republican interests in the Midwestern states. I don't I don't understand why why somebody like Obama is not stepping in and saying you know this is this doesn't isn't in my best interest politically and it's not in the best interest of people who are living in these states and to try to. To, to make a little bit of a difference in the environmental quality and in the quality of life.
2: Yeah, I, I find it fascinating. I mean, I'm sure you saw the executive order that he signed recently about um, antibiotics, you know, and right. how we have, need better stewardship, and yet any regulation or any sense of, of really pulling the teeth of, of agriculture in terms of antibiotic overuse d- just didn't make it into the, the final right. draft of that executive order. It was a, a very, very, I, I, really quite surprising to me and shocking. Um, and I just I don't understand why he's not paying more attention to this, but unfortunately we must wrap it up. I hate to say goodbye, Ted. <laughs> <That's
1: okay. laughs> Thanks very much. For you know, this has been me. Great. Really so you have a website.
2: Tell us what the website is. We must promote, promote, promote. Do you have any events oh, yes. coming well, up you, in New you can, York?
3: You can you can find me at dot mm-hmm. That makes it as easy as you as can be. Um, and then, you know, of course the, the book is available in bookstores and, and online booksellers everywhere.
2: Absolutely. And, uh, you know, just uh, keep listening. Cause you're going to be, I'm, I'm hoping you're going to be everywhere and, and, and all over the place, but there's definitely been a lot of coverage. Mother Jones has covered you a bunch of other publications. Um, and, you know, I wish you the best of luck with this. And I hope it's you and Chris Leonard are sort of the bellwethers leading this movement to like, really uh, address, you know, open up the eyes of the United States to what is actually going on uh, in terms of labor, in terms of immigration, and why it's so important that we pay attention to those aspects and not just whether or not there's animal cruelty going on in somebody's slaughterhouse. You know what I mean? Like, these are bigger issues, and these are the ones that are really going to have an impact on our nation going forward. So thank you so much for your work, and thank you so much for being on the show. really appreciate it. And thanks to the wonderful White Oak Pastors for their sponsorship. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening, folks. Bye-bye now.
1: Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 non-profit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.